Life is full of changes. Sometimes those changes are making a million dollars, losing it all, and having to start again. In other cases, sometimes it's living all over the world in 10 different cities, carrying multiple passports, and having to reestablish yourself as an introvert. Today, I'm joined by Luke Menkes, and he's a friend of mine. He had me on a show, and the show is Newtown Big Dreams, and you can find it at newtownbigdreams.buzzsprout.com. And we're gonna talk about his career in real estate, his business successes starting over and everything in between so that thanks for being here i'm your host tim kubiak as always you can find me at tim kubiak just about everywhere and the show is bow ties and business luke how are you man i'm great it's great to see you tim thanks for having me on yeah, it's a pleasure and, and apologies for the reschedule life got crazy and frankly mm -hmm. i got a sinus infection it, Took me out of the game for about six weeks. So Jeez. appreciate the patience. <laughs> Glad to see you're much better now. So. Yeah, yeah, boy, al allergy season for me is brutal every year. <laughs> so. okay. And I, I used to blame it on the end of trade show season, but that wasn't the case this year. So it was just right. allergies. <laughs> right. So you've made a million dollars, lost it, made a million dollars, had to start yeah. over again. Yeah. You mind sharing a little bit of that backstory? Because a, that's a dream, right? Everybody's like, oh, I'm going to make a million dollars. But to lose yeah. it and be able to redo it and have to do it again. Mm -hmm. So, so um, it's kind of an interesting story. So the first time I inherited a building in the Cayman Islands, uh, 1997, my father wanted to retire there. And two weeks after he bought this building, he was diagnosed with terminal cancer. So June 98, he passed away and uh, I did my first financing deal, 27 years old. I built a spreadsheet and I went to the bank and I wanted to refinance to buy out my brother and sister. This building only had about four or 5,000 uh, free cash flow a month. Okay. And I wanted to move there. I decided I was going to move to the Cayman Islands. Um, it was a lot of fun. And uh, it just didn't make sense to try to have one person manage this and then split it three ways between um, my brother and sister. So that was going to be my full-time job. Okay. So that's what I did. And uh, in 2004, we had a hurricane, a direct hit of a hurricane. So a lot of people, you know, we hear about hurricane season in the Gulf and, you know, the Gulf states and the Caribbean islands. Hurricanes are really huge, but the very dangerous part is very small. So the odds of the eye of the hurricane hitting you directly are really, really small. And for years, you know, we'd board up windows and stuff like that. And then it would brush by, we'd lose a couple trees. But in 2004, we had a direct hit and it was devastation. Like most of the island had no electricity for over six months. And it's tropical and it's very hot and all that. So I learned um, all about building insurance in 2004. I never read my policy 
I just said, tell me what I need to get. And I'd write a check and that was it. So that was the biggest lesson I learned from that was um, if you're spending 10, 15,000 a year on something, you should read that policy. You should know what it covers, right? It's really tedious. It's really boring. It's written by lawyers. Yep. But um, I probably lost, you know, three, $400,000 in the end because I didn't understand the document that I was paying for. So there's a, a concept called underinsurance where they say, you know what, your building is actually worth more than what you said on this policy. So we assume that you're insuring yourself the, the shortfall. And that's called un, underinsurance. I bet you like 99% of people that buy home insurance or building insurance don't even know the concept of underinsurance. So they say, um, we're only going to cover 80% because your building was actually worth 20% more than what you had it covered for. And you can dispute it and you can go to court and it can take years. But anyways, I negotiated a settlement and I got this building rebuilt. And at the time I figured I had about a million in equity in the building and it was destroyed, like completely destroyed. And I was able to build that back over time. So I didn't have any savings. I think I had like 500 bucks in my pocket when the hurricane hit. And uh, I had a beautiful old Mercedes who was swamped. Um, insurance didn't cover it. So I was completely wiped out, but I was able to rebuild this. So that's how I say I made a million dollars the first time because I was able to negotiate and finagle and sign up leases and do all kinds of things and build that back. And that was really depressing, but it wasn't as bad as the second time because over time we were making progress. We would clean up the building site. We would sign a new lease, you know, over time it was getting a little bit better every day. Um, in 2010, um, no, first of all, 2008, I was watching too much CNN and I thought the entire financial system is coming to, a complete collapse. Yeah, I thought the same thing, by out. the way. You weren't the only one. <laughs> right? Yeah. So I sold this building uh, right before the crash. And um, I always wanted to have a Swiss bank account. Because I but you're watched already too many in movies. Campus, man, that's a pretty good trade. Right? right? Right, yeah. Yeah, so I thought, well, that's a little boring. So I opened a Swiss bank account and I put a million US dollars in the account. Pay off all my bills, bought a couple of brand new cars, gave my sister some money, you know. And um, I was bored, you know, I was in my mid-30s and I was living back in Canada now because I have a 16-year-old daughter now. I met her mother in the Cayman Islands and she was from this town that I'm living in now. So long story short, that's why I'm back here. But in 2009, I was sitting on the patio of my uh, favorite bar in this small Canadian town. And uh, the bar owner says, Luke, I'm totally burnt out. Do you know anybody who wants to buy a bar? And I couldn't sleep that night. And I thought, I've spent so many days on this side of the bar. Like, how hard could this be? You know, it's friends with all the bar managers and bartenders. It was one of the worst decisions I ever made. Because uh, I hated it. Because you can't drink when you're at a bar, when you own the bar. And I realized really quickly, I do not enjoy the company of people who are drinking when I'm not drinking. 
I mean, they're obnoxious, they're ridiculous, they go on and on, and you can't leave, you know? So it was just terrible. So then I made another decision, and I said, well, I know how to be a landlord. I know how to change light bulbs, collect checks, write leases. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to buy this building, and I'm going to find a tenant to run this bar, and then I can just come and have a drink when I want, and I'll collect the rent. Great idea, right? Right. But I didn't do an inspection on the building. And uh, I don't know if you ever saw the movie The Money Bit. I sure have. This movie was, this building was like that movie. I foolishly did not do an inspection and it had bet bugs, it had termites, it had plumbing issues, and I lost everything. Everything. Like wow. within two years, I was completely wiped out. So I lost it to foreclosure. And uh, that was worse because each day the bills were getting higher, you know, people I owe money to were getting more and more angry. You know, there was no progress. It was like, it was way worse than the hurricane for that reason. So that's what happened. That's how I lost it the second time. Yet you're still on the property business, right? Yeah. You're still around. Yeah. So I, um, you know, I was uh, pretty close to homeless, but I had a car and I started a delivery business and I started to do pretty well in this delivery business over time. So I decided like the only way I'm going to be able to make money in a reasonable fashion is to get back into real estate somehow. So I had my big, uh, you know, four inch thick textbook. And I uh, was driving around doing deliveries. And when I was waiting for calls, I would be studying that real estate course in my car and uh, or in coffee shops. So I got my real estate license in late 2012, early 2013. And that's how I was able to recover. Now, I haven't made a million dollars yet. Able to uh, get remarried. You know, now I have two daughters, two stepdaughters, and, uh, you know, I have a really nice life. I didn't get back to that level, you know, where I'm jumping on airplanes and being very frivolous, but, um, it's definitely, you know, I'm, I feel like I'm living my best life now that I've recovered from that crash, personal crash in 2010 to 2012. It's interesting how, you know, and I've had some businesses fail and stuff in the course of my career, how you, when you go back and you look and you're like, boy, really shouldn't have spent that, right? that decision. What the heck was I thinking, right? Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, and the upside is sometimes you do come out of it with a different financial quality of life, but a much better quality of life. Definitely, definitely. And I mean, um, that foreclosure process was uh, really, it was personally embarrassing, you know, because people, you know, from around the world, all the places I've lived, they'd be like, how you doing? And I'd be like, they're, they're bringing me into court. Like, it's terrible. But um, I was able to build a, a relationship with a banker in 2014. Uh, he's for, we have like five big banks in Canada. It's good, they're called the big five, right? Um, and Toronto Dominion Bank, TD Bank, they have a lot of assets in the States too. They own the uh, Boston Garden uh, where the, the Bruins play, TD yeah. Center, I think it's called. Yeah. So um, 
Anyways, uh, I built a relationship with this guy. And at that time, the real estate market here was quite slow and they had a bunch of foreclosures. So I was able to help either the bank or um, buyers with 13, 14 foreclosure deals. I knew the process, right? And I was able to go in right. and tell the homeowner, look, I know I'm the last person you want to see, but I can explain to you the process and what's going to happen, right? How much time you've got. Like, I try to befriend them and say, look, I've been through it. I know what you're going through. And it made it much smoother. You know, I was able to come in and take pictures and, yeah, you know, so if I hadn't gone through that, you know, maybe I would have had a different attitude. Like, you know, you, you didn't pay your bills. It's time to go. You know, I might have had that kind of arrogant attitude that yeah. I had as a kid, you know, so. Yeah. Yeah. So, so what led you to the podcast? That's a great question. So, um, real estate, I'm not uh, a person who loves to do a lot of cold calling. I don't like to bug people. <laughs> I like to get into really complex deals and spend a lot of time with them and uh, spend a lot of time building relationships with clients and uh, spending as much time as they need. So I've had clients where, you know, they wanted to just look at stuff and it was two, three years before they ended up buying stuff. And uh, in 2016, I was running my own office and I did um, 44 transactions. I didn't have an assistant. I had to wash the windows. I had to shovel the sidewalk. I had to go buy the bottled water. You know, I did every, all the marketing, all the social media posts. I did everything. So I got really, really efficient with my time. And uh, now things have calmed down a bit. I'm still doing great, but I find like... I can do 12, 13 hour days, but there's like gaps, two, three hours where I'm waiting for somebody to call me back, you know, yeah. or waiting for paperwork to come in. And um, I just decided, you know, I wanted to do it. I listened to um, Gary Vaynerchuk audiobook, Crushing It, yeah. I think it was called. And he said, uh, real estate agents to start a podcast and become the local expert on local businesses just go out and talk to business owners. And uh, I thought that's a great idea because I, what I try to do, like what I did when you came on my show is I like to pick your brain, right? And say, well, how does this work? How does that work? Explain, you know, so I'm getting such an yeah. incredible education from it, right? And um, during COVID, I decided to expand the reach past my town. So I'd done about 150 interviews local businesses. And uh, I thought, well, how can I change it without changing it too much? And I realized that 95% uh, of my guests had moved here from somewhere else and that I had moved here from somewhere else. And I started every episode with, tell us how you got here. Cause I find that really interesting because I've had a great story. So I want to hear other people's stories. So that's the, that's how I kept the theme kind of the same. I always start every episode with, so you live in the Midwest. Did you always live there? And if you did, what was it like growing up there? And if you didn't tell us the story, why did you move there? What's the reason? And I think it's just great. You know, I hear hundreds of stories. It's just awesome. Yeah. Yeah. And, and unless you reload and lived other places, 
you don't understand what that does, right? right. As you, yeah. you well know from the show and from your own life, to live in another country, to change cities and in regions, not an hour down the road, but you know, 10, 12, 15, 20 hours away. Yeah. Your whole world changes. Totally. Totally. Yeah. I think it's good for us uh, because yeah. it really helps you to grow, right? You have to figure out new ways to talk to people, new ways to run a business, right? Every city is a little bit different, Yep. but it's also a lot of fun. Um, it's fun getting to know a new place, you know, and getting to know the people. So, yeah, it, it is. You know, I, I have found, you know, being a transplant, we talked about this a little bit in the Midwest, like all my friends are transplants. None, none of my right. friends are actually from here. Right. Right. Because you can't, you know, no matter, I've been 18 years now, right? It's still an outsider's view. I'm not really from here. Right. Yeah. <laughs> I just have, and it's you know, my joke. Right. Yeah. And, and you never, you know, my kids a little more integrated because they went to school here, but to a certain extent, they're even still outsiders. Right. Yeah. And when you ask one of your friends, who's a transplant, you know, for that story, it's interesting, right? It makes them a little more interesting. Yeah. You know, Bob came from Los yeah. Angeles or whatever the case, right? It just tells you a little bit more about them yeah. as a person than, you know, I work here, I do this. To me, that the location is a huge part of everybody's story. Yeah, yeah, and, and I think living different places, even if it's within the same country, truly gives you different perspective. Because there, yeah. as much as we like to pretend there's not, there is a different culture between major cities in Canada and you know within the country, within the U.S., and certainly by region. I, I can do things in New York that nobody will bat an eye at that people would hate me for in Texas, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So. yeah, definitely. So what's next? Well, that's, uh, that's a good question. I got an offer to actually run a real estate brokerage. Uh, so I'm a managing broker now, and uh, the company I work for now is kind of, it's... um. The realtors are full service realtors, but the company is kind of a very efficient, well-run machine. We don't get a lot of training. We don't get any training, to be honest. We don't get, um, you know, a lot of backup, but the fees are really low. So my job as a broker is not that involved, but I've been asked to come and uh, take over a company with about 35 agents. So my apprehension is, oh, wow. I don't, I don't know if I want to be you know, chained to a desk, like it's kind of making me a little bit nervous, right? On the other hand, there's a opportunity for tremendous growth there. Like this will be the first time I've been able to own something. When I lost my building, my commercial building, I thought for years, I thought there's no way I'm ever going to be able to own an asset again, like maybe a car, maybe a couch, <laughs> but to own a business or a building, yeah. like I just couldn't see how that was ever possible. It was so like mentally devastating, right? So this is the first chance I've really had. They're going to give me ownership stake in the company um, in exchange for for running it, and uh, that that's done a tremendous amount for my self confidence. You know, going from sleeping in a cart to someone saying, "Look, we've watched you, we see you, we want you to come and you know help our agents." That's tremendous. So 
I think that might be the next big step for me. But we're gonna we're gonna find out the next day or two here. I got to make a final decision and uh, sign a contract. So nice that that is you know if everything lines up at least it's an amazing thing to be offered even yeah. if you don't say yes right exactly yeah yeah congratulations that's really yeah. cool to hear yeah so you're the first uh person outside of my family to uh to hear this so nice <laughs> yeah nice well i'm honored news there <laughs> little breaking news yeah um so on the terms of breaking you're in a hot industry, right? Real estate everywhere is crazy. Can you give some perspective on that? Yeah. So, um, you know, I learned a long time ago, like when things were slow, you know, I like to listen to real estate coaches and stuff. And I like to listen to older guys who have been through, you know, the ups and downs. And uh, one thing that stuck in my head was there's always a deal to be made. It doesn't matter if it's like crazy or if it's super slow. There's always someone who needs to buy something and someone who needs to sell something. And your job is to put those two people together. Like go find those two people, right? So um, we've, you know, the first half of 2020 was terrible. It was dead. Um, the second half of 2020 here was insane. Like it was the busiest six months I've had in my life. The first half of 2021, it became tough again, not because it wasn't busy, but because there was no inventory. So I working with buyers, we would go to a house, they'd say, I love it, put an offer in, and we get a call from the realtor. There's 13 other offers on this house. I'm sorry, we didn't pick yours. Good luck, right? And that was happening for months. But, um, you know, we looked at, one thing I did was uh, I said, well, there's most houses are selling within a week, but here's some homes that are sitting for 30, 45 days. What's going on? Well, they're overpriced. They're overpriced, right? So what people do is they say, well, I'm shopping at say $700,000. They'll pick five or 10 online. They'll look at the pictures, they'll look at the square footage and they'll book appointments for those five or 10. If something is getting overlooked, it's because it's out of that, they look at it and say, that doesn't even make sense. It doesn't look nearly as good as these other ones. Let's skip it. So it's counterintuitive. I was telling my buyers, let's go look at houses that are overpriced. We don't want to look at houses that are underpriced because right. houses that are underpriced, it's a swarm of people. And then someone gets their ego involved and someone's going to overpay. Mm -hmm. Right. It's like auctions. I don't know if a good auctioneer will get someone to overpay it and yeah. they start off really low and they, you know, you have a chance, like just get into the bidding. Right. Yeah. So it's kind of like that. But if a house is sitting there and the crowd is not there, you have time to think about it, to analyze the price, to negotiate and to pay what's actually a fair price. And you don't have all that competition or all that emotional mental pressure to like decide right this second, you can take a day or two. Go see it a second time. So I was able to do, I don't know, six, seven deals like that. I said, let's try to find the, the homes that are overpriced, that are sitting there and find out why they're sitting there. It's usually they're overpriced. Sometimes they need work, right? And so we were able to make deals that way. That's brilliant, right? Yeah. So. Yeah. yeah. It, it, why fight the crowds? 
exactly. It's, it's always easier to go up than negotiate down. So if you start low, right? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. As a buyer. And then uh, with listings, I was able to get a few listings in the second quarter, which is great. They're like gold right now. You just pop a sign yeah. on and uh, sit back. So, um, yeah, it's really it's really a feast or famine situation right now. Like there's, uh, you know, maybe 10% of the realtors are just making a killing and 90% are really struggling because they're finding it hard to put those deals together. So, yeah. Yeah, it's, you know, I, we literally, for my home here in Missouri, you know, there's the debate, do you sell now while it's high, buy land two or three exits up and just build something and mm -hmm. rent in between? Because it's it's such a premium. Yeah. So yeah. what are you gonna do? Are you gonna do that? Uh so we've been talking to the local guy, and the truth is is it may be somewhere in between that, right? It, <laughs> so <laughs> yeah. but they, I'm watching things move. I watched properties to your point. Last summer I watched properties when I'd ride my bike or walk that sat for six months, eight months. Yeah. You know, and they were similar sized houses to mine and literally in my neighborhood. And now I'm watching stuff. If it go, even gets a sign in the yard before it sells, half the time you have a sold sign before they even put the MLS listing out. It's amazing to watch. And I'm going, hmm, boy, maybe it's time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's interesting. You know, yeah. human psychology is so interesting. Like when it was slow years ago, I had the opposite problem. So I would take someone to see five, 10 houses and they would say, I love this one. I would be like, great, let's spread an offer. And they would say, well, what's wrong with it? And I said, what do you mean? And they would say, well, it's sat here for five months. Uh, am I stupid or am I missing something? Like nobody else in this city wants this house, but I want it. Yeah. So they would get paranoid that there was something wrong with the house. I'm like, there's nothing wrong with it. It's just, there's too many houses for sale. Yeah. Right. We're going to get an inspection yeah. and all that stuff. So. So yeah, but uh, when people see 10 people lining up to see the house, they say, oh, it must be a really good deal and uh, people overpay. And I had one lovely young couple, first time home buyers, and we made 11 offers before we finally got one. Yeah. And I had to convince them, let's go, let's go for something that's sitting on the market. And uh, that, yeah. that worked. So. Yeah, that's. So I have a second place that my youngest daughter lives in in Kalamazoo, Michigan. Yeah. And, um, right. And that was even two and a half years ago, a tight property market. There was just no inventory. And we ended up buying a house that, you know, had, was sitting there, was part of an estate sell off, et cetera. Um, and needed a ton of work. It was, you know, you watch all these shows on television. Oh, it's so easy. You go in, you do this, you do that. It's beautiful. Mm, yeah. yeah. My right. wife, my wife and daughter spent two weeks scrubbing nicotine off the walls before we could seal them. Oh yeah. Right. TV and shows the only like reason it's... we didn't rip it down to the studs was because it was old school. Yeah. Yeah. Those TV shows. It's yeah. like, yeah, there's a TV lot of work. And then five TV, minutes right? later, yeah. It's, yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yeah, you know, and, and finding quality contractors and quality plumbers, if you're not in the business, that is tough. <laughs> right. Very tough, yeah. And, and that's why uh, I think it's good advice for realtors and everybody to just build relationships with people. 
just take an extra 30 seconds if you know you're standing in line somewhere and just be friendly to people because eventually you're going to need a, a plumber or you know an electrician or something like that and if the people you're friends with aren't electricians they're going to recommend someone to you like i'm really careful with referrals now i used to just give them out like candy but i've had a couple of cases where the person said that person was horrible or they had a bad attitude or they overcharged me or something like that. But now if someone asks me for an electrician, if I like the person who's asking me, right, then I yeah. would make that connection, right? So it's really valuable to be able to make those connections. Yeah, it, yeah, but the guy we ended up using is our GC in Michigan, you know, because we we'd use a set of plumbers we did get a great electrician out of the gate got us to the gc gc got us to another set of plumbers because it was 1960s pipes right that all mm. needed redone um you know it, and it was but until you got that first good person to get the rest of the essentially crew involved in yeah. by the way these are to your point of referrals these are guys who are going back to hey can you do this hey we want to upgrade that now right so it's right. like the continued work and if I ever bought anything up around there again, they're the first people I'd call. For sure. Yeah, totally. So shifting just slightly to sales, talk about mm. the sales process in real hot market, cold market, right? I do a lot of B2B, but you know, you're doing a lot of consumer. There's a different set of emotions involved, I'd imagine. Definitely. Um, I, I enrolled in the uh, Grant Cardone University. I don't know if you've heard of that, but he's like a pretty famous sales coach, no. um, Grant Cardone. But uh, he said, you can, you know, I used to get really a little bit rattled when people would get emotional, you know, around a purchase or a sale. And I would think, you know, you're being irrational, like, and I would sometimes take it personally. And uh, what Grant Cardone said is uh, he's been in the boardroom with guys, you know, with millions and millions of dollars, sometimes even like billionaires and people, not everybody, but people have a tendency to freak out and get super emotional when it comes to financial transactions. So he said, you have to do two things. You can't ignore it, brush it off, but you don't want to absorb it, right? You don't want to take it personally. So you have to acknowledge it and say, you know, I see what's happening here. So there's, there's a lot of that, um, especially with home buying. And it doesn't matter if it's like a, you know, a $200,000 condo or a $3 million house. We see emotional reactions from people at key points in the sales process. And so now I just learned to kind of expect it. You know, I don't go, oh shit, you know, this deal's going to go sideways and take on that emotion myself. So that's one of the things I would say I've learned just in the last couple of years. I used to go, come home and say, this is so stressful to my wife. I would say, this is so stressful. I don't, I don't know if this deal is going to go through. The person's acting really irrationally. Now I just kind of expect it. You know, some people just get super uptight about stuff. Um, but I, my style, like I said, I'm not a person who likes to cold call and say, Hey, do you want to buy a house? Do you want to buy a house? Like, I just don't, but if someone calls me out of curiosity, I know that they're at a certain point in that sales process. Some people act really quickly. Like some people, once they feel comfortable, they'll buy a house tomorrow. And some mm -hmm. people, it literally takes a year or two. So it's really about just, you know, 
trying to figure out where they're at in the process, staying calm and listening. You know, I found taking an extra five, 10 minutes to listen to someone is way more productive than just cold calling people for five or 10 minutes. Cause that person is eventually going to turn into a deal. Maybe tomorrow, maybe next year. But when they feel like they're heard, they're listened to, and I take notes, I don't take a ton of notes, but you know, this is what they're looking for. And then if I come across something, you know, I'll say, Hey, I saw um, a house today on the realtor tour. Made me think of you. Here it is. Do you want to go look at it? Right. Doesn't always turn into a deal, but they say, Oh, Luke's thinking about me. You know what I mean? Like I can trust that Luke will listen to me. And so I'm more of a tenacious, but slow, I guess slower than a lot of these guys that are just, you know, on the phone, on the phone, on the phone. Right. And uh, that gets me, you know, 20, 30, sometimes 40 deals a year uh, from referrals, from repeat business. I'd rather take more time and do a few fewer deals. I mean, I've had some clients, they started with a condo, but it turns out they had a ton of money. And I didn't know it. And uh, they were buying a condo for their daughter. And because I was patient and I took my time and I wasn't like acting like I'm in a rush, you know, I'm in a huge rush all the time. They've done like five deals with me now, multi-million dollar deals because I'm not that kind of high, you know, are you going to sign this contract? Are we going to get this done? You know what I mean? I'm just like, I move forward. I try to move forward, but without pressure, if that makes sense. It does, right? And that's when you deal with money, that's a tough. Yeah. So not, you know, there's always a temptation. I deal with, you know, you get a deal through, you work a deal, you work a deal, you work a deal, and then it goes to some procure. Right. And I'm, I'm kind of like you. I'm like, here's the facts. Here's what we've done. Yeah. Here's what I've already saved you, what we've agreed to, all of this. There's nothing else. If it doesn't work, okay, cool. Right. And they're yeah. like, wait, no, no, I, I need, I'm like, you got it here. You can't get it here and here too. Right. right? And, and that's okay. If you find some sucker that'll give that to you, take it. I would. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. For yeah. sure. And so there's, you know, it's kind of like a rhythm. It's more, um, you know, some people like to go really fast and like facts, you know, facts and numbers. Other people, you know, especially with houses, it, even people with a lot of money, I find it is an emotional experience. You know, they have to feel like this is home. You know, yeah. that's why I tell sellers, uh, your artwork and everything is amazing. It's beautiful, but you're, this is your home. You're going to take that with you. But the real estate, we need to neutralize it so it appeals to a wider audience. For example, some people are hunters and they've got a big, you know, moose head on the, yeah. I'm like, if a vegetarian comes in here, they're not going to buy it. They're going to feel like really offended and right. Yeah. That's something that will go with you in your next house, but let's yeah. open it up to a wider range of buyers. Right. When, when, when it's cluttered, when it, when there's a ton of stuff, it's really hard for the average person to visualize their stuff. Yeah. And it hit an emotional feeling like they're coming into someone else's house, which is true, but it, it feels like an intrusion when I'm stepping over things and 
Yeah. It doesn't feel like, oh, I've just come to my new home. Right. It feels yeah. like I'm invading almost, you know? Yeah. So clutter, uh, you know, things like that. You know, it's all about psychology, really. You want a person to be happy, minimize their stress, you know, and be yeah. excited about it. That makes it fun for everybody. It does. Yeah. And, and it's interesting. You talk about, you know, for years I heard, you know, about people taking furniture out and staging things a certain way. Yeah. And if you think about it in a, in a technology conversation, we do the same thing. It's just with PowerPoints and demos. Right. Right. Don't show this guy that it's too much of how the sausage is made. Right. You know, you don't need a couch that seats 42 people. The average person will put one in here. I love seating a sofa and a chair in here. You'll seat six. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and, uh, you know, it's the same thing with smells. You know, if, if there's cat litter. Yeah. And people say, well, that's a $10 bag of cat litter. What's the big deal? I'm like, it's the, it's the emotion that the person gets when they come into the house. Right. Yeah. And most people like are working in offices behind a desk, things like that. And you know, if you've got chip paint, broken door handles and stuff to them, it's like, oh, this is a lot of work. And I'm like, no, it's really, we'll get a handyman in here. It'll be fixed in three hours. But to yeah. them, it's like, this is a lot. I have enough work in my yeah. own life. Like I don't want more work. Right. So fix those little things, you know, all that stuff. Yeah. You know, it's interesting you say that on the, yeah. Cause it's kind of thing. I don't think you even notice, right. When you live there, you, the chip's been there, you just don't see it. But when you go That's in right. somewhere else, man, are you paying attention? Yeah. Totally. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so anything else, you know, as we kind of wrap things up here today, you know, obviously the podcast, people should go listen. Links are in the show notes right at the top. Right, it's linked at the bottom at the opening of the video. So, mm -hmm. what else should we talk about? So, I think it's um, it's a really great show, and what I try to do in the titles is be uh, descriptive. So it's like a keyword from your bio, because your bio tells me what's important to you, and I try to base my questions on that. And uh, I'll put a key phrase in in the title, so a person can scroll through. It's not really a show where. Um, you know, we're covering current events and you kind of need to listen to it sequentially. You can listen to it in any order you want. You're going to find people who resonate with you no matter what you're into. So like I've interviewed artists and uh, B2B salespeople like yourself and real estate agents and architects and travel agents and bankers. So it's mostly entrepreneurs self-made people but um there's all kinds of topics like all kinds and the only thing that uh each episode has in common is we spend two three minutes at the start saying tell us how you got to chicago tell us the story <laughs> right but yeah and, and craziest thing you've had happen on the podcast um that's interesting I've had a couple of crazy things. I mean, I screen a little bit better now, but uh, in the early <laughs> days, so they used to come and sit right at this desk with me, you know, before COVID. Right. And uh, I had someone get up and say they were too nervous and walk out. That happened once. No kidding. Yeah. Another one, it was great. And I thought it was um, a local um, 
homeless person um, kind of facility where they gave people food and like canned food and stuff like that. And it was one of the administrators and I wanted to ask her, you know, what's it like? Is it really busy? Are there a lot of people, you know, struggling questions like that? And I thought it was a great interview. And before I published it, her boss said, we've uh, fired this person and we don't want you to publish that episode. I was like, I don't think she said anything negative. Like, right. But they were like, nope. And I was like, can I ask why? And they're like, we just don't want you to publish it. So, wow. But, you know, 99% of the time has been super positive, super great. So, uh, I did. Here's an interesting story. So, I have my calendar app totally wide open. I just assume, you know, everybody's like West Coast or East Coast or something in between, yeah. right? I got a, a booking for 3 a.m., 3 a.m. And I was like, okay, this is a crazy person on the East Coast that wants to do it at 6 a.m. Right. I mean, I can't imagine why someone would want to do it at 6 a.m., but here we are. Turns out the guy's in uh, Perth, Australia. And it was like 8 p.m. for him. And he's like, are you sure you still want to do this? I said, yeah, let's do it. So I got up at 2, and I made a smoothie, and I made a coffee, and I and we did it. It's uh, a few episodes back. It's Rail Bricker. And a super interesting guy lived in South Africa, moved to Australia, and we were talking about how businesses are dealing with COVID and, you know, how the workplace has changed and virtual meetings and stuff like that. Yeah. But he was like, I, I, he's like, I thought there was a typo or something was wrong. He's like, I can't imagine you would get up at three in the morning. And I was like, I guess I'm dedicated. Yeah. So. I I got to say, I think I would have second-guessed that one. I give you a lot of credit. <laughs> and it was fun. I just went back to bed and, you know, I just chatted with the person for 30, 45 minutes. Yeah. And uh, it's no big deal. You know, I've had to get up before to, you know, when uh, my wife went into labor, you know, we had to get up. And when I had to catch a 5 a.m. flight, I had to get up. So it's not the end of the world. No, you know, that's a, that's a really good point, right? I look at that, but when I reported in the UK, I did implement the 6 a.m. rule, right? Yeah, Nothing yeah, you gotta, 6 yeah. You got to be realistic, right? Yeah. So no, they, you they, can't book before 5 a.m. No. Yeah. They had the a proclivity Coast, so I gotta, to, to schedule and move it, right? So yeah. as long as they show up, it's okay. <laughs> exactly. So I do 5 a.m. just because I'm on the West Coast. Uh, I've yeah. had quite a few people that book 8 a.m. Eastern, you know, because they want to get to the office or whatever they're doing yeah and that's fine that's fine i know a lot of stockbrokers and stuff they start uh 5 a.m on the west yeah. coast yeah right yeah you know that's interesting that you say that because you know for years because i've reported to somebody substantially five six hours east of me right mm. i got used to even though my business was you know continental north america was i could work really early and close out a lot of the european stuff and then by 2 3 p.m let's face it you know yeah. 2 p.m central's 4 p.m you know on the east coast and it's you know lunchtime on the west coast so it would start to slow down for me yeah makes so sense. but yeah so by late afternoon everybody had disappeared the brits and the europeans were all asleep and i only yeah. had to keep my eye on the west coast stuff 
Right. <laughs> yeah, was, it was I, a good call. I actually <laughs> like it. I actually like it because the kids aren't around. My phone's not ringing. My email's not going off. Like nobody is even alive at three a.m. I mean, it was awesome. Yeah. Like zero <laughs> interruptions. You know. Yeah. You know, people laugh. I get up. I work for two hours, and I go exercise. And they're like, "Why right. don't you exercise first? I'm like, "Because you guys start calling me, I can ignore the phone when I'm exercising." <laughs> exactly. <laughs> strategy. So, Luke, thanks so much for being here. I appreciate you taking time. Thanks for sharing your personal story, your business story, and um, again, Newtown Big Check out the show. He's got a lot of great guests. He's got several that you've heard on here that will give you a completely different take because of his style, which is fantastic. <laughs> Thanks so much. Thanks, Tim.